Welcome to episode one of Let's Talk Reform. This podcast is brought to you by SJAIP, a collaborative initiative by a team of scientists working to elevate the discussion around social and mental health needs in the school-to-prison pipeline and the United States criminal justice system. Our goal is to amplify the current work being done by organizations, educators, and advocates to change the system we see today. Today, my team member Rhea Dange and I will be speaking with Dr. Bev Frieda Jackson, who's a professor at American University in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology, where she teaches courses on race issues and justice and social justice movements. She has a doctorate in political science from Howard University with concentrations in black politics, American government, and public administration. Dr. Jackson is currently the Director of Research and Development at the Bond Educational Group, where they focus on issues of race, equity, and education. Hi again, Dr. Jackson. Thank you so much for appearing in our virtual video series. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to take it back a little bit and talk about how you got started. Back when you were a doctoral student at Howard University, your research was mainly focused on patterns of resistance to school desegregation in the post-Brown versus Board of Education era. What inspired you to pursue that? Um, So yes, my dissertation work was around school resegregation patterns. And I will interestingly say I'm mildly obsessed with the Brown decision, um, knowing that Brown entered the courts in 52, but it did not, it was not rendered until the first time in 54 and then a second time in 55. Um, And a lot of that, um, that history, I have to say, was where I was, how I was raised. So um, when I was in the first grade, a private um, school that I'd gone to did not actually acknowledge Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. Um, And my parents did not send me to school that day. Um, what they actually did is the very next day, we went to the headmaster's office and they explained to him why I was not in school. Um, that was what I call my Ruby Bridges moment. And I have to say in the home when I was little, we were studying civil rights cards. I was saying third grade Marshall super early on. Um, so I think that that foundationally is what had me really, really driven into, you know, wanting to study issues around civil rights and social justice. Um, and then when studying the Brown decision, it was so phenomenal because the Brown decision did in fact enter the courts in 52. um, And the courts, they heard the case um, and they could not come to a decision. And then the session ended. Chief Justin Vincent passed away and Earl Warren was appointed the chief justice. And Earl Warren was very familiar with uh, school desegregation and what that needed to look like and the potential overturning of Plessy versus Ferguson, which is is what the Brown case did in fact overturn. So the timeliness, the sequence, kind of how all that happened, how Earl Warren was able to get the unanimous vote, all of that um, was absolutely fascinating. And so um, my dissertation work was around that and kind of the science behind Brown, but even more so what happened after Brown and what I like to call um, Langston Hughes has a phenomenal poem what happens to a dream deferred and I'll think of Brown as the dream deferred a lot of what Brown was about um, was about allocation of resources um, and equity and education Um, and so studying that became a passion of mine Um, I have to admittedly say like undergrad and it just kept it kept going until I found myself writing a dissertation on it (laughs) So Dr. Jackson, something we wanted to discuss with you today is the school to prison pipeline. Can you explain what that is exactly and why it's called a pipeline? 
Yeah, so the school to prison pipeline um, is how we describe literally the funneling of children and, and primarily children of color um, into a ju the juvenile justice system, kind of fast tracking, so to speak. Um, so it's a bit of a pipeline because we're talking about um, as young as age three, young children getting caught up in this cycle whereby they are either suspended or expelled or even arrested because we're seeing more policing in schools that's translating into more arrests that will have the trajectory of that child head to the juvenile justice system. So this cycle of what we're seeing, that's how we define it as the pipeline. It's unfortunately cyclical um, by virtue of the fact that, you know, if in fact you are not on grade level in third grade or eighth grade, or perhaps you have had some behavioral challenges earlier on in your elementary experience, the likelihood of you touching the juvenile justice system increases exponentially, I know, by over half, over by over 50%, if in fact, um, you are not on grade level and perhaps have, have been either suspended, expelled, or whatever that um, experience may have been, unfortunately. So who exactly, which students are most vulnerable to being involved in the school to prison pipeline? Is it youth of color? Is it youth of poverty? Yeah. Um, so interestingly, when we think of kind of who's in the pipeline, so we'll kind of define the pipeline, probably translates into them um, potentially touching the juvenile justice system. We're talking about children of color. We're talking about um, children in the foster care system and also children with disabilities as well. And so, you know, when we think of the foster care system, we know that it's disproportionately children of color. Um, we're also, we're primarily thinking of brown children, so African-American children. We're also thinking of Latino children children as well, um, as children that are primarily impacted when we talk about the school to prison pipeline and who we see being funneled through this pipeline. I want to start at the beginning of that pipeline. Can you tell us how that starts and how young children can be when they're first drawn into the first stages of this pipeline? Sure. So the research lets us know that we're talking about as potentially as young as age three. So we say the school to prison pipeline, but in, in reality, it's potentially the school to prison pipeline. And a lot of the origins of why we see this, this phenomena is based upon um, policy and procedure, but policy and procedure that is pretty is, I want to say antiquated in scope, but it but it's older. We're talking about policies from like the 70s and 80s. So zero tolerance policies that were put into place when we had um, governance that wanted, say, maybe gun-free safe schools, right? Or perhaps broken windows theory that speaks to the criminality component around how we view um, criminal justice in this country. Those are a lot of drivers that are living at the foundational components of the school to prison pipeline. Um, the zero tolerance policies have by far been the most impactful. Those are when we find like in a school, there is no tolerance at all for any kind of um, activity, whether it's behavioral or, and not necessarily defined as a criminal that is being um, seen by either teachers, administrators, by potential students. The interesting thing is, is when when we think about um, the policies that were in place. So the broken windows theory, zero tolerance policies and or governance from the 70s and 80s, the reality is, is we were not seeing criminal, uh, say crime and criminal activity in schools actually increasing when we had this more stringent kind of rigid type of science that was being applied. It, in many ways, it, it spoke to, I would say, kind of how we think of our criminal justice system or how we are much more of a, a punitive model versus a restorative model. And so a lot of that lives in uh, how we see the application of and the driving phenomena behind the school to prison pipeline. And where it all begins, unfortunately, is quite young and, and it unfortunately evolves um, throughout, throughout time. 
than their white counterparts. Um, when you look at children with disabilities, also two, one in three, you know. So when we also look um, just across those domains, the proportionality of, of children of color that we're seeing impacted, um, and unfortunately the impact being defined as being expelled or suspended, um, that's translating into what we call dropout factories, um, a bit of an education crisis. That's what, um, that's what, we're, what we're seeing with um, children of color in terms of them being even more impacted by this pipeline. So when we're moving from the preschool to prison pipeline into what you call dropout factories, how does that sort of translate over the years? So what we'll see is falling graduation rates. We'll also see instances whereby um, you will have, I know I'd made mention of being on grade level between grades three and eight and how mission critical that is. But oftentimes in your elementary school experience, middle school experience, high school experience, if in fact, you know, you have with zero tolerance policies, um, a, a certain number of strikes, so to speak. So oftentimes you'll find that students will not get a chance to actually finish their school experience. And so that's what becomes our, our dropout factories and what translates into an education crisis. Um, when we think of or kind of talk about advocates that are having this conversation, examining the school to prison pipeline, you'll hear um, from either the ABA that'll look at it from a fiscal component comparing how much are we spending per student versus juvenile justice beds versus the conversation at the NAACP that speaks to the dropout crisis. Um, and that crisis speaks to what we're seeing around achievement, but even more so graduation rates that are declining. Why do you say that grades three to eight are mission critical? So when we look at data around kind of if you're on grade level, that's why if you're on grade level in third grade and or grade level at eighth grade, there is um, there's a line, there's a linear relationship as to web, how well you'll do in school. Um, oftentimes, you know, First grade, you'll hear um, first grade teachers talk about kind of that, that continuum. It's huge in terms of what your, your math and your reading will look like. Um, third grade is not that dissimilar, and now there's eighth grade. Depending upon the school you may go to, you may see kind of your shift from your elementary to your middle, but then also to your middle to high, depending on your schools. But it's driven by the curricular components that live within those grade levels and the children that aren't on grade level by curricula standards, that unfortunately, they proportionately have a higher propensity to touch the juvenile justice system. That makes sense. So as director of research and development at the Bond Educational Group, I wanted to learn more about how this organization tackles education reform. Yeah, so at the Bond Group, our commitment is really to equity in education and, you know, having that conversation with schools to ensure that the environments they are, in fact, creating, thriving in are, um, in fact, cultivating an, an environment of equity um, in education and inclusion. So a lot of the work at the Bond is, A, to kind of research those critical issue areas that are impeding equity in education. Um, so hence the school to prison pipeline is one of those issue areas. Additionally, we have an intentionality with clients that are truly committed to the equity conversation, the inclusion conversation, um, training with them, coaching with them um, in terms of how do we get you to build that in-house capacity to a degree about how to have the conversations with your teachers, with your students, with your ultimate community. Because part of, I'd say the mantra that we have is that 
we can't operate in silos. You know, there it can't be all oh, the teachers here, students here, administrators here. That doesn't work. To have the communal dialogue, it's mission critical that everybody is at the table. So we would like to ensure that there are internal stakeholders and external stakeholders that are part of the conversation. Um, so what the bond seeks to do is really to to provide that glue to kind of help schools and, and I'd say schools, but then also part of this conversation. It's much broader than schools. It's organizations because when we look at the community, there's so many natural touch points. But the work of the bond is to dissect those issue areas, but then unearth those and then help bring those into a more, um, I'd say a more macro conversation about how we can help you um, cultivate inclusion in and equity and inclusion as it relates to education, but also generally in your environmental scan, that this is something that you guys are, that in schools and environments, that it becomes a natural pulse for them. So um, in a previous conversation that you and I have had, uh, you discussed the need for restorative justice interventions. Um, can you tell us about what restorative justice is and examples of interventions that play that role? Yes, most definitely. So restorative justice, when we think of, so we, we know that the pipeline exists, right? We know of this funneling. We're clear. We're crystal clear that it's here. We've got empirical data to support it. Um, the other piece of that is, okay, so we, we've identified the problem. How do we solve it? what's the solution? And so among the solutions provided has been um, looking at the restorative justice model. And when we think of restorative justice, it is more of a rehabilitative model. So as opposed to the punitive model that drives a lot of our criminal justice conversations, this particular model, it, it forces the individuals to A, have a community dialogue. So you're talking about perhaps the perpetrator and the victim, both they are at the table, and you're figuring out what a rehabilitative of solutions so that whatever this activity may have been, whether it was criminal in scope or not even, perhaps behavioral, depending upon what you see in the schools, how do we course correct? Um, a lot of the restorative justice conversations, I have to say, you know, my learning of it was a phenomenal one from Desmond Tutu's No Future Without Forgiveness. And it was um, the model that was used, how South Africa dealt with apartheid. Um, and the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you saw the actual application of a restorative model and kind of what that would look like in execution. I think we kind of shift our mind's eye and shift the paradigm in terms of not punitive but restorative um, that in and of itself is such a huge step in terms of how we look at course correcting behavioral challenges in schools with children um, and what that ultimately looks like end game for them around their trajectory in education um, restorative justice it seeks to rehabilitate not just the individual that may have had the disciplinary issue but also the others that are part of that community conversation as well so I'm a little bit curious, why have we so far preferred a, a retributive model in the United States for both our criminal justice system and our education system? Why haven't we tried this yet? Or have we tried it and it just hasn't been spread? So I think there's a little of both. I think that um, the type of model, the retributive model, the one that's more punitive in scope is, is how our legal system to a degree is derived. You know, we are, we're very litigious and elements of being so litigious fold in elements of defense, for defense and prosecution. <laughs> um, and so when we have those conceptual drivers, um, that to a degree has foundationally defined what our legal processes have looked like. Um, to shift paradigms and to, um, to consider a restorative model is definitely different from the foundational elements that how we view the legal process. 
this. Um, so I'd say there's some entities, some jurisdictions, some schools that have definitely um, undertaken really examining a restorative model and how that can play out. Um, when we talk about those solutions to the school to prison pipeline, some of those solutions translate into better agreements between schools and law enforcement entities, perhaps um, conversations on agreements between the courts and the schools. So making sure that all the stakeholders at the table are part of this restorative dialogue. Um, it's been undertaken, not as, as in many, as many places as we would have liked, but ideally it's a growing culture that we'll start to see more of. So what does advocacy against uh, the school to prison pipeline look like? How do we dismantle it on a state and a federal level? So, you know, I think more than anything, it becomes extremely imperative that individuals study the issue. So advocacy first is understanding the issue, knowing the issue, and doing a little bit of homework around the elements of the issue that you want to dive into. I mean, and it, it really means doing your due diligence around understanding conceptually and also empirically what we're talking about. Um, and so I say the best and first advocacy is kind of identifying what the critical issue is and really truly immersing yourself and learning about it. Um, and then you're able to speak from an informed place. Um, so if we want to be able to in our local spaces um, before and, and I would recommend in our local spaces spaces first before we even evolve to our federal spaces we try from a community space being activist activist persons being advocacy places so identifying perhaps individuals in your community in your schools that are doing this kind of work um, creating a niche whereby this voice and vision around what you see um, that is inequitable is being addressed um, and figuring out an equitable equitable way to address that um, I think voice and vision are huge components and they are driven after kind of learning learning the issue area and really kind of mastering the elements that you seek to advocate. Um, you know, changes is not as fast as we would like it to be. You will often hear that change is slow. However, um, the opportunity to potentially impact policy and governance um, can be something once, you know, we've created those advocacy spaces and that from that local reach, identifying kind of who communally legislatively might be able to, you know, kind of step you through what the change, what changing that process might look like. Um, and then you stair step your way to kind of more macro governance on the federal legislative level as well. Um, but I think Definitely the best place to start though is, is locally kind of where you are and really entrenching yourself in the issue and creating advocacy spaces of vision and voice and, and ensuring that this is a communal dialogue because that allows you the opportunity to get a sense of all the lenses and all the perspectives that are flowing into this community conversation. Thank you for that, that was awesome. So we've had a lot of conversations recently about creating advocacy spaces in light of the recent Black Lives Matter protests. What's the best way for us to create space for the people who are most directly affected by the system to be heard and be voices for change? So definitely, I would say the best way to do that is to make that space. Um, you know, what we what we have to do is in a in very intentional way, um, ensure that all voices are heard, kind of expanding the reach. So, you know, we, it's easy, we can get, um, it's easy to kind of get caught in kind of a, that tunnel vision around the issues that we're super passionate. So in making sure that there's this expansive lens, it, it's that there's an intention, intentionality that's required in making space at the table. And that's, um, you know, in defining who your internal stakeholders are, who your external stakeholders are, and making sure that all that representation is there um, is definitely the best way to make sure that they're, they're 
aren't any gaps. And, you know, we're not going to necessarily, the formula is not perfection, right? We're not going to get it right. It's not going to be instant coffee. However, um, what we can do is intentionally create that space and have a targeted reach to make sure that there's inclusion around the voices that are at that table. So speaking of the Black Lives Matter protests real fast, how do the goals of the current racial justice protests and the movement in general tie into the need to reform the school to prison pipeline? Yes, so the, the current social justice movement that we're seeing right now um, definitely aligns, uh, you know, I would say in a pretty amazing way with the school to prison pipeline by virtue of the fact we're talking about equity. We're talking about ensuring that um, not just across the school to prison pipeline primarily focuses around equity and education and, and from a criminal justice space, what we know um, um, is inequitable. So the Black Lives Matter conversation it raises the question around ensuring that equity across the board, across lives, across impacted persons, that that's being dealt with in an equitable way. At the crux of the school to prison pipeline, we know that inequity exists for children of color, children that are in the foster care system, children with disabilities as, as young as age, age three, um, and bringing that inequity to light aligns most perfectly with the Black Lives Matter movement that seeks to ensure that we've got justice across subpopulations, across, um, you know, especially communities of color um, that are most highly impacted by the school to prison pipeline. Speaking of the communities that are affected by the school to prison pipeline and disadvantaged by the United States education system in general, where do Native American or First Nations children fit into this? And that's a pretty great question because I think that um, we, there's still some appealing to do, some dissecting to do relative to um, Native Americans and how they are impacted by the school to prison pipeline. There's been a lot of great empirical work that's happened over the past decades around this conversation. Um, some great longitudinal analysis that gives us some insight, but I think we could do more around disaggregating the data and operationalizing it even more by the subpopulations that are impacted. Um, you know, we have a lot of macro level data that highlights, I would say, you know, communities of color, specifically African-Americans and the Latino population, but more definitely would need to be done around, you know, how the Native American population is being impacted relative to this particular issue. That makes sense. It's always a process. We need to keep learning. We need to keep pushing boundaries, doing studies, collecting data, and we're scientists, so we get that. Exactly. How has COVID-19 further um, drawn out disparities, especially when it comes to youth of color and education reform? Yeah, so the COVID-19 space has definitely, I would say that it has actually brought to the fore um, in a very impactful way, um, the digital divide. So, you know, we find ourselves now in these intelligence spaces where we're Zooming, we're ringing, we're, we're doing all kinds of, of technological ways to stay connected, right? And, you know, what we already knew was in place was a digital divide, especially as it relates to communities of color and technology. And so what has um, been exposed even more to a degree has, with COVID-19 is the fact that um, that, that reality is there, um, that we don't necessarily have communities that are easily equipped with Chromebooks or hotspots um, so that they too can remain um, a part of the, the conversation. We know that these communities are not necessarily resourced. And I think, you know, COVID-19 has forced our hand 
and truly seeing that disparity. Additionally, um, just around COVID-19 and, and equity, it brings to the fore issues of healthcare and access to healthcare um, and what communities um, do not have access to healthcare and what that looks like, and also issues of underemployment. I think a lot of the issues related to equity, um, aspects of institutionalized you know, racism and, and systemic ills to a degree have been um, exposed even more so in COVID-19 as we as we kind of learn what has been defined as our normal. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing. That's all I have. Rhea, do you have any follow-up questions? I think, I think I'm good. I think you covered it all, Dr. Jackson. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next week when we sit down with Marcy Mistret, the CEO of the Campaign for Youth Justice.